You're listening to WVEWLP 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's Community Radio, also streaming online at WVEW.org. This is the Vermont for Mystery Hour, a show exploring the Green Mountain State's strange past and present through stories that pique your curiosity and make your neck prickle. Beat the Sunday Scaries with me every weekend, broadcasting Sundays at 7 p.m., or catch the rebroadcast on Thursday nights. The opinions expressed on the Vermont Ver Mystery Hour are those of the host and guests, and don't necessarily reflect those of WVEW 107.7 FM. A portion of today's programming at WVEW is underwritten by Southern Vermont Solar, a local solar company with over two decades of installation experience. Southern Vermont Solar's mission is to help our community transition off of fossil fuels and shift to clean, renewable energy. They provide solar design and installation, Tesla Powerwall backup battery systems, and troubleshooting services. For more information, visit svtsolar.com or call 802-387-0088. WVEW thanks Southern Vermont Solar for supporting community radio. So the first time I saw one was, would have been about 1996, 1997. So this was in West Newberry, Vermont, which is where I grew up. Um, I was on break from college. It was a summer evening, and I was driving home from my from my girlfriend's house to my parents' house. And just as I was passing under, I was on Snake Road in West Newbury, and just as I was passing under the uh, Interstate 91 bridges, just about to pass under them, and at the like under the bridge, there was a uh, catamount right in the middle of the road. Um, my headlights were on it. It 100%, no doubt in my mind, it was a catamount. This wouldn't be Dave Cole's last encounter with a large feline. He believes he likely saw the same animal around the same area in late summer, perhaps that year or maybe the next. As he was taking a walk down Peach Brook Road one afternoon, he rounded a corner to see the catamount, sitting in the middle of the dirt road, just as before. I don't know. I guess he likes sitting in the road. Um, But this time it was daylight. If Dave seems a little adamant about what he saw, it's not without good reason. It's been 140 years since the last catamount believed to be living in Vermont was killed, so accounts like Dave's are often treated with skepticism, more akin to finding Bigfoot than running into a bear. The word catamount is thought to have first appeared in William Shakespeare's The Tempest as a shortened term for Cat of the Mountain. Today, it's mostly used around Vermont and parts of Appalachia, while in other regions of the country, you might more commonly hear the words mountain lion, cougar, puma, or panther. In reality, these cats are actually all the same animal, puma concolor, which means cat of one color. But it's certainly a cat of many names. According to the Mountain Lion Foundation, these animals are known under more names than any other in the world, including 18 indigenous South American names, 25 indigenous North American names, and 40 English names. The Abenaki word for these cats is Bartolo, which translates to long tail. 
Catamounts could once be found throughout the continental U.S., but today they've largely disappeared from the Northeast as a result of overhunting and loss of habitat. In 2018, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service officially removed the so-called Eastern Puma from the Federal Endangered Species List, declaring it extinct, and it's believed that the last catamount living in Vermont was shot in 1881. And yet, between 50 and 75 sightings of the animal are still reported to the Vermont Department of Wildlife every year. Some of the sightings and photos can be chalked up to mistaken bobcats or even housecats if the right angles and proportions skew the image. But like Dave, many Vermonters who claim to have seen a catamount insist they're sure of what they saw. There's no doubt in my mind what it was. The first sighting was nighttime, but my headlights were, were right on it, very, very clearly illuminated. And the second sighting was, was in full daylight. These sightings have led some to believe that, just maybe, the cats could still be living here. But more than that, it's given the catamount a sort of mythical status, an equal place in Vermont's history and in its present-day folklore. Welcome to the Vermont for Mystery Hour. I'm Meg McIntyre. Tell you what, then two most common things for people to say when they come right in the museum. The first thing is they say is where is the bathroom? And the second thing they say is, oh, I saw one. They see our catamount and they instantly have a have a story. That is one of the most common things that people say when coming face to face to our catamount. So it's very, very much present in the in the Vermont imagination. That's Amanda Gustin, the public program manager for the Vermont Historical Society. The Society runs the Vermont History Museum in Montpelier, where the last catamount shot in Vermont is on display. This weekend, the museum launched a new exhibit exploring the catamount's history and cultural significance in the Green Mountain State. And it's a long history. The animals had been living in what is now Vermont alongside indigenous peoples for thousands of years before European colonists arrived on the continent. The Abnaki very much had a sort of respectful relationship with the catamount and with, with nature generally. They sort of appreciated it very much as a strong, really cunning hunter. They're extraordinary animals, extraordinary hunters. So they absolutely would have sort of seen and respected that, but also their top predators, sort of right at the top of that food chain and would have been at the time, they would have been Vermont's apex predator for quite a long time. So they, they also had a healthy respect <laughs> for the animal and, and I think perfectly understandable and, and justified fear of it. They would have coexisted for quite a long time in Vermont's forests and in Vermont's landscape. And that story starts to change with the arrival of settlers of European origin. European colonizers thought of the land as something to own and to use. They thought the land should be productive and predators like the catamount were seen as a threat to their citizens and their livestock. So they began to hunt them out. Like in early, early written histories, you might see that, that language of taming the wilderness, and you might see it celebrated as taming the wilderness. So into this category of, of wilderness, um, the catamount ends up falling, the catamount and also the Abnaki. So these early settlers would have seen both as undesirable things uh, and that they should, be, they should be removed, alongside the wolf, the bear, other sort of predators that they considered not compatible with civilization, unfortunately. 
The Green Mountain State's first set of laws actually offered a bounty to anyone who delivered a wolf's head or a panther's head, as they were called more commonly at that time, to their local authorities. And there was even a bonus for killing a baby catamount. Gustin described it as a coordinated eradication effort, and because the cats tend to travel long distances and don't typically live in packs, there would have likely been only a few dozen living in the area to begin with. Their numbers quickly started to dwindle. It's a little tough to tell exactly in the records, but it looks like there are fewer than 20 bounties paid out for catamounts for as long as the bounty was on the books. Probably there were some later in the 19th century because they moved to a system where they didn't list every single one. They just listed the amounts paid out overall. But by the 1820s and 1830s, it starts to become a big deal when someone kills even one. You know, it, it, it becomes a newspaper article. Hunters who bagged the catamount would parade the stuffed animals or their pelts from town to town on a sort of victory tour stopping at hotels and fairs, and charging a fee for spectators to see the quote-unquote object of curiosity. Gustin said there are photos of Alexander Crowell, the man who shot the last documented catamount in 1881, showing the animal off all over the state. The Historical Society even has a reproduction of a poster from the time period that reads, Come pay to see the monster panther. At the same time that the catamount population was being eradicated, the cats were slowly shifting into a different cultural status, appearing more often in popular culture and regional expressions like, I'm so hungry I could eat a panther steak. And with Crowell's kill, it seems Vermonters started to understand that the animals might truly be gone. So my, my theory is, although I think we could certainly all do a lot more research and thinking on this, is that when people realized this animal really was gone, it started to move in, in the Vermont imagination from active threat, thing that could be eating my livestock, thing that could be scaring me when I'm alone in the woods, to a thing that you start to think, oh, but it, but it was a, a sort of a, a remnant of an earlier time. It falls a little bit into this, this like emotional place of nostalgia, maybe a little bit. And that starts to build and that starts to build, and it really starts to pick up in the 1920s and 30s. Around that time, a man named William Ballou discovered what he believed to be catamount tracks near Chester, Vermont. He was convinced that the cats were still living here, so he launched a public campaign calling for others to recount their sightings. And he founds a group called the Irrepressible and Uncompromising Order of the Pantherites, which is just, we don't name clubs like that anymore, it's not the best name yeah I love that <laughs> it's wonderful they have a theme song that they sing at their meetings it's just it's wow. great so so Baloo founds this group and he's he really kicks off this wave of people he and a guy named Harold Hitchcock who's a professor at Middlebury sort of had this early 20th century idea of the catamounts still here Baloo and Hitchcock painstakingly documented the sightings recording everything from the time of day to the position of the sun and some of their papers will be on display at the Historical Society's exhibit, along with plaster casts they made of the paw prints Blue found in Chester. As Vermonters searched for evidence of the animals, they started to become more and more central to the state's cultural identity. One of the more famous early instances of catamount symbolism is Faye's Tavern in Bennington, which was an early meeting site for the Green Mountain Boys. Someone, it's a little unclear who, someone shot and killed a catamount and, and stuffed it and put it up above the sign for the tavern facing New York. And the stories say, you know, it was it was sneering at New York or it was growling at, at New York. It was a symbol of Vermont fierceness against New York. 
even at that point, even when they were actively trying to, to eradicate it, they did recognize like, oh, sometimes fierceness and sometimes these scary things can be on our side and sometimes they can be symbolic of the things that we might want to embody. This view of the catamount became more and more ingrained throughout the 20th century, and the legacy remains today through Vermont businesses and institutions that have chosen the animal as their mascot, from the University of Vermont catamounts to the Mount Mansfield Union High School Cougars and the Thetford Academy Panthers. There are real estate companies, vodka brands, and solar providers that bear the name, as well as graphic design firms, ski areas, and carpet cleaners. And though catamounts, or mountain lions, or whatever you want to call them, still roam in much of the western United States and parts of Florida, Gustin says the cats are actually featured in a section about Vermont at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. It's displayed alongside exhibits about the abominable snowman and P.T. Barnum's Fiji mermaid. It, there's there's something there. There's something about what we want to we want to believe. There's mystery out there. We want to believe there are things that are unknowable out there. It, it might be there. The forests are huge and and deep and wild. Um, it might be there. That Lake Champlain is huge. There might be something there. It it tugs that same that same place in us that that wants to believe. It's sort of weird because you don't get many other cryptozoological animals that are that are truly and, and deeply real animals but they occupy that place emotionally in a folklore kind of way in a space as the catamount. It's, it's sort of this interesting bridge there. Though she's never seen one herself, Gustin says it's possible that at least some of those 50 to 75 sightings a year are truly catamounts, even if the animals aren't living here. In 2011, a catamount was hit and killed by a car on a Connecticut highway, and DNA testing later revealed that the cat had traveled 1,500 miles east from South Dakota. With cougars traveling such long distances, Gustin says it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that the sightings are of animals just passing through. There are some efforts in the state to deliberately reintroduce the catamount, as has been done before with wild turkeys, beavers, otters, and other animals, and some advocates for reintroduction see it as a way to control the deer population. Gustin noted that, as forested as Vermont might seem today, the landscape is still vastly different than it would have been in the late 18th century, and will likely never return to the state of the catamount's original habitat. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the catamount is gone forever. We are sort of proceeding on a reforestation path. There are very good, very credible biologists who will tell you it's not if the catamount will come back, it's when. The Catamount exhibit at the Vermont History Museum kicked off this weekend and will be on display until May 2022. This summer, the Vermont Historical Society is also partnering with Vermont State Parks to offer programs about landscape change and its impact on the Catamount, and will also put on three group hikes in partnership with local historical societies following the routes of the last Catamount hunts in Vermont. For more information, visit vermonthistory.org. We'll be right back.
Do you have children between the ages of 12 and 15? Does it sound like this in your home? I want to be vaccinated. Can we get vaccinated? When can kids get vaccinated? If so, WVEW would like you to know that Vermont children between the ages of 12 and 15 are now eligible to be vaccinated with the Pfizer two-shot vaccine. The FDA and CDC approved its emergency use for this age group. Yay! Parents and caregivers are encouraged to vaccinate these young Vermonters. Appointments can be made by visiting healthvermont.gov slash myvaccine. You can create an account or use your existing account, adding the child as a dependent. Those making appointments for this age group will only see clinics with the Pfizer vaccine. If you need assistance, you can call 855-722-7878. Parental caregiver consent is required. The health department is working in partnership with the Agency of Education to offer school-based clinics with daytime and evening hours and a listing can be found at the Agency of Education's website. Walk-in opportunities and pharmacy visits are also available. This has been a public service announcement of WVWLP 107.7, your community radio station. Welcome back, pals. It's time once again for Murder, She Rates, the segment where I recommend all manner of media for lovers of mystery and the macabre. (laughs) Try saying that five times fast. This week, I want to tell you about the film The Killing of a Sacred Deer, starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell. This one has been popping up on my streaming recommendations for months, so I decided to finally sit down and check it out. It follows a cardiac surgeon's friendship with a teenage boy named Martin, who has some kind of mysterious connection to the doctor's past. The surgeon, played by Farrell, invites Martin to meet his family, telling them he's taken an interest in the boy because Martin's father died when he was young. But as Martin starts to get comfortable with the family and begins to show up unannounced more and more frequently, the doctor's family members also start to fall severely and inexplicably ill, one by one. He soon realizes he must make a choice and a sacrifice he never anticipated. This is a thriller grounded in psychological suspense rather than jump scares or excessive gore. It is deeply unsettling, though, right from the very first moment, when the screen is abruptly illuminated by a close-up of a pulsating heart in the midst of surgery, which is reportedly footage of a real patient. The uneasiness continues to build throughout the film, aided by dialogue that always feels just slightly off, as if there's some hidden meaning behind each line that we as observers aren't privy to. The cinematography in particular is gorgeous, full of wide-angle shots that give the viewer the impression of watching from somewhere above and unseen. This is especially effective in scenes at the hospital, which feel eerie and clinical drenched in the fluorescent lighting, and the use of symmetry and long stretches of silence further heighten the unnerving atmosphere. The most disturbing aspect of the film might be the characters, who all seemed quietly unhinged in their own way, even those who are presented as innocents. Though I didn't know it before I watched, the film is apparently loosely based on an ancient Greek tragedy called Iphigenia at Aulis. And there are some brief references to this throughout the film. The movie's ending deviates a bit from the myth, depending which version you're comparing it to, but the core theme, of death as sacrifice in exchange for sin, remains. Overall, I'd give The Killing of a Sacred Deer 4 out of 5 skulls. If you've seen the movie too, let me know what you thought or share your suggestions for future reviews at vermystery at gmail.com. That's vermystery at gmail.com. 
Alrighty, that just about does it, but first, a couple of quick announcements before we wrap up today's show. First, I want to say a big thank you to Travis Whedon, who wrote a piece about the show for this week's 7 Days newspaper. I had a great time chatting with him about this weird little passion project of mine, and he did an awesome job with the article, so be sure to check that out if you haven't seen it yet. I also want to give a shout out to a listener named Jerry from Warwick, New York. Jerry emailed me to let me know that my previous episode on Highway Robbers Thunderbolt and Lightfoot inspired him to do some research of his own. He's done a deep dive and even hired a genealogist in Ireland, and he believes he's found evidence that Brattleboro's Dr. John Wilson likely was not Captain Thunderbolt, as the locals here believed. In fact, there's some doubt as to whether Captain Thunderbolt existed at all. You all know that I love a good mystery, and I really think this just makes the story of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot even more intriguing. Jerry has compiled his research online, so if you're interested in hearing more, check out his blog at thunderbolt-lightfoot.com. That's all for today, folks. Special thanks to Amanda Gustin of the Vermont Historical Society for speaking with me for this episode, and don't forget that the Society's Catamount exhibit will be on display until May 2022. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Meg McIntyre, with research help from Matt Bruno. Our cover art is by Ginny Stoos, and our theme music is by me and my pal Nikki Seafried. If you liked this week's episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you thought. You can also follow the Vermont Vermistery Hour on Twitter, at VermisteryPod. Let's beat those Sunday scaries, friends.